Hi, and welcome to A Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. In this episode, I'm speaking to Mehul Sangam. Mehul works as the executive director of Culture Hack Labs. Culture Hack Labs is a cooperatively run consultancy focused on data-driven research and strategy services for systems change. In the work he does at Culture Hack and throughout his career, Mehul has focused on developing technologies that create a better future for all. And most recently, this has involved working to develop a robust set of tools for narrative-led systems change practitioners. I heard Mehul give a presentation on the work that he and his colleagues do and was just blown away by the quality of the work. Lots of people, I think, talk about systems change, but I think that Culture Hack Labs and Mehul's work really stood out to me because they've really done the work to develop a technology that allows us to see how narrative-led systems change happens and how that relates to real-life changes in the world around us. So for me, I think that this work is incredibly inspiring and powerful and offers us all a brilliant example of what that systems change might involve, what kinds of steps are involved in helping systems to shift at at a big scale. Um, What I love about this conversation is that we really start to dive in to the spirituality of regeneration and the relevance of wisdom traditions like Zen Buddhism and Taoism for the work of making organisations more regenerative. We really get into that conversation of if we want our organisations and ourselves to be doing work out in the world that is having a positive impact on the thriving of life, then the only place we can start with that is doing that work internally, is exploring what it means for us to be living regenerative lives ourselves, to be healing the damages, the harms, the hurts within us if we are to avoid putting them out into the world. And he also brings in a perfectly timed story about the organisation Soil. For those of you that missed the previous episode, um, the Soil is what I use to refer to the elements of grounding within an organisation. So that includes its vision, mission, kind of key identifying statements like that. It refers to its foundational legal and financial structures. It refers to its story and its origins. Um, and in the previous episodes, we, we explore what it means for those elements to be more or less supportive of the thriving of life. So he brings in what it looks like at Culture Hack and how the arrangement that they have has really supported them. Mehul joins this conversation from the Peruvian Amazon jungle. So you also get the occasional treat of a bit of noise from the wildlife around him. So listen out for that. And finally, just before we start, a quick confession. At one point, we start to discuss the ancient Chinese concept of Wu Wei, meaning effortless action. And its counterpart, Yu Wei, which can be understood as kind of goal-oriented action. But I get it wrong. And instead of saying Yu Wei, I say Li Wei, which as far as I'm aware is not actually a thing. So I catch this mistake at the end of our discussion. But please know upfront, the correct term is Yu Wei. There's enough fake news in the world without me adding anything else to the mess. Okay, let's dive in. Okay. Hello. Welcome, Mehul. Welcome to A Thriving Future. How are you? Good. Thanks. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, So good to be here. It's a bit hot today, but otherwise I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Well, I love to start the podcast by asking everyone who comes on to just let us know where in the world you are. So it's definitely not very warm where I am uh, on the Mm. North Kent coast of England. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are? I'm calling in now from... um, from Peru. Um, I'm about an hour south of Iquitos. So pretty much in, in the Amazon. Um, and it's a really bright, beautiful day, um, but also pretty hot um, in here. So I'm glad to be 
joining you. I'm I'm a little jealous of, of your weather. Actually, <laughs> it's been a few months of really hot weather, and it's it's basically hot, but also mosquito season. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Well, the grass is always greener, they say, right? Yeah, exactly. But um, I don't know. I think I'd take a little bit of tropical mm-hmm. jungle right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, okay. Thank you so much for helping us picture you uh, surrounded by lushness and hopefully lots of squawking, hooting, biting creatures. <laughs> well, maybe not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I would love us then for you to tell us a little bit more about Culture Hack, about Culture Hack Labs. Could you tell us about the work that you do? Um, but also it would be great to hear a bit more about the organization itself. Like, you know, what what kind of organization is it? How big is it? Where are you? Um, just yeah. give us a bit more of the the kind of picture of the layers of the organization that you're talking about today. Yeah, sure. Um I think a good a good place to start is kind of like the inception of Culture which happened about four years ago, um, and it, it's a really interesting kind of story because it was almost like a passing on an evolution of knowledge, and so a lot of a lot of the people who founded were like important or important in um, kind of putting down the foundations of Culture were involved in another organization called the Rules. Um, and the Rules Foundation um, was around for about eight years prior to that and was a, I, I guess I could characterize it as like a think tank um, of people who were very um, interested in finding ways to address the crises, the poly crisis of poverty, uh, economic inequality, um, climate change, etc., and came from very, very different disciplines. So some came from um, systems, you know, eco, eco ecology and systems theory. Some came from linguistics and semantic cognitive theory. Others were movement organizers. Others ha- had been like entrenched in the NGO world for many years. Um, and they came together to kind of find and rethink ways in which we could address systems change. And so during that time, um, they started to um, experiment in, in, in with different ways of approaching um, these these problems. And uh, at the beginning, it was kind of more intuitive uh, and adaptive in going to an issue and just kind of working and finding new ways of organizing, new ways of doing things. But eventually, by the time I joined that organization, which was about four years in, four years in, I... Um, started to see a kind of coherent methodology plus point of view worldview um, that was really interesting to me. And so when I joined, I started to work with the team members to try and cohere that into uh, a, a way of working, a, th- a theory of change, etc. But also a set of data analytics tools and methodologies. And so I, w- for me, I was really fascinated by okay, how can we there was so such interesting things happening there. I was, I was very interested to see if we could put those all together to coherent picture. And so I started doing that. I was working as the technology director for about four years there. And then when the rules came to an end, um, uh, a few of us were very keen to continue the work. And so we started from that point. And uh, at first we, we kind of had a rough, like, direction we were going into but it was essentially we realized that narrative work is an essential component to facilitating the transition to post-anthropocentric world post-capitalist world Mm -hmm. Um, but we couldn't do this ourselves or even in a in a small organization we needed to get we need this work to get to a, a threshold value or certain scale in which people would start thinking in narrative, start thinking in, in narrative-led systems change and really trying to um, that become like a new currency of people who are interested in the ch- in actually the transformation. So our goal was, how do we get that basic methodology to a certain scale? Um, so that was kind of like our mission. And so when we started, we 
we we got together we we thought about how we would do this and what happened is kind of two three key areas started to merge the first one was consolidating and developing a set of tools whether they were data analytics tools or um you know, methods different ways of working um the second one was more around um kind of structural analysis of um of the polycrisis structural analysis of the world and you know having that really clear and then the third piece was organizing and actually working with movements working with people on the ground and so those became like the three areas in which we wanted to build capacity in could you say just a little word now and when you say structural analysis could you say a bit more about what you mean by that can or maybe an example Structural analysis, essentially, it just, you know, it means uh, understanding the causative means of the polycrisis, like actually connecting the dots, you know, between the ideologies of the Anthropocene, the ideologies of the Industrial Revolution, capitalism, neoliberalism, Mm -hmm. and how those breed certain cultures, certain mind frames, certain narratives that lead to ecological crises, etc. Okay, so you're looking at the connections between ideologies and how they show up in the world, how they manifest the kinds of things that result from those mindsets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was a critical part of, of our, our work. And I would say it's actually one of the things that makes us somewhat unique in a lot of the narrative organizations that are currently around. Um, so yeah, we started working on that and um we cohered around these kind of principles when with this mission um and we've been around for about four years now and i'd say we're getting to the place now where we've kind of built the capacities and resources to start really acting on that vision so it's taken us a while to actually get to that place um and yeah i think that's like a good overview of where we are and what we do i don't know if you have any more questions Mm, well it would be good to get a little picture of kind of the maybe just like the shape of culture hacks. So like, how many are you? Where are you? What kind of, are you a social enterprise, a a for-profit business? Like what's the kind of nitty gritty of of who you are? Yeah. So we, one of the things that we, we, we had a choice was to either create a not-for-profit or become fiscally sponsored and have a kind of looser fiscal um, identity. And, um, we chose quite early on at that stage because we weren't sure a lot about the direction we wanted. And we really wanted to be adaptive and also have the freedom to move in, in an agile way. So we chose to uh, be fiscally sponsored and we're fiscally sponsored in uh, New York. And we, our organization has about, I'd say 15 to 18, 20 people at any one stage. And we don't really have uh, kind of a permanent roles. It's more contract based. So mm-hmm. it's very loosely coupled, very self-organizing. And um, that's been actually really useful to get us off the ground, you know, mm. from a place of like uh, zero to, you know, having consistent teams working together and, and things like that while providing us the flexibility uh, of, you know, a fiscally sponsored organization, which is not necessarily at the behest of a, a board and all the other, you know, bureaucracy that sometimes mm. comes with that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind of an, um, not the most common arrangement, right? I mean, could you say a little bit more about what it means to be fiscally sponsored? It's amazing that, you know, you feel like it's an arrangement that's given you lots of freedom and flexibility and so on. Could you say just a little bit more about what that actually means, how it works? Yeah, essentially, I think the most the most important thing is it's it's a it's a form of alliance. You know, it's like you're, and I think that's, I think there there are there are a lot of organizations who are fiscally sponsored and they have a very kind of, um, kind of abstract cold relationship with their sponsors. You know, the 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 other the organization holding um, the project, but for us, it was really finding an organization that was very aligned to what we are doing, very aligned to a mission, someone, uh, an organization that could understand what we were doing um, 
and it just felt like a really mm. easy fit. So that was that was a complex process. Initially, we were we were with another fiscal sponsor, and it was a really difficult process. You know, like we initially we immediately, even though let's say politically, and um, they were aligned to some of our values in terms of their organizational practices there was a very huge chasm mm. between the way we were operating and the way they were operating. So that I think, you know, for other organizations that want to follow that kind of process, it's really key, I think, to have that kind of uh, not just political, but also kind of ideological and organizational alignment. You know? Yeah. So, oh, this is wonderful mm-hmm. timing because actually um, the episode that precedes this, we're talking about, in the framework and metaphor that I use to help organizations think about the different aspects of their practice and what it might mean for some of those things to be more or less regenerative. The first mm-hmm. aspect of that is the soil and the organization's grounding. And, and one of those elements within the soil is the kind of legal and financial structure of the organization. And the mm-hmm. point that I make there is that actually it's not so much about the structure itself, although that can be really can have a really important role. What's most crucial is the values upon which that structure is is based. So like you Absolutely. say, it's a relationship. It's not necessarily the fact that it's um, a financial sponsor because you have relate examples where that wasn't so successful. But the fact that that mm-hmm. relationship is based on shared values is the thing that's then granted you this this freedom. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's definitely. I think that's a key aspect for us like getting up on our feet so quickly um because if we didn't have that i think we would have run into a lot of trouble um so yeah Mm. completely agree with that amazing well i have lots Mm -hmm. more questions about kind of how culture hack works internally and what it's like to be in the organization but Mm -hmm. before we do i'd love to just spend a bit more time exploring the actual work that you do um because you mentioned some amazing things already um so i'd love to just talk a little bit more about you know, you talk about narrative work, you talk about narrative-based systems change. Could you just talk a bit more about what you mean by those things? What is narrative-based systems change? Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, really what we started, what started to happen, and this is actually kind of now in, you know, kind of this time, 2021, people started to really recognize the importance of narratives at like a more kind of, let's say, threshold level. You know, people, especially people, let's say, in the progressive left in the U.S. or people working climate and, um, you know, these different social justice areas, there really was a new awakening to the importance of narrative work. Um but before that, I think there were a few organizations that were really leading the way and kind of like had the penny had dropped maybe 10, 12 years ago. Um, and so going back to that point, what essentially was understood was that to change systems, especially human systems, you have to change the culture that precedes it. All systems change, meaning, and when I mean systems, I mean complex systems that are material, you know, um, and social preceding those changes whatever they are there's some sort of ideological wave there's some sort of cultural wave you know um we see this we see for example in the industrial revolution the preceding preceding the industrial revolution was a uh, the formation of ideologies that concreted the self you know the individual self and the atom, at- atomic world and from that, we started to get the production line and, you know, modernist buildings and furniture, et cetera. So mm-hmm. this kind of analysis became very kind of crucial as the crises around us escalated. And so a few people started to really dive deep into that. And so our work, uh, when we say narrative work, what we're saying is uh, essentially to change systems we need to look firstly into the narratives that are causing these systems because people um, at a kind of certain level are not engaged with the belief systems that they're embedded in they're just acting they're you know they're almost kind of numb to um, the different ideological systems that bear upon them and they go to work they do this they do that 
you know, et cetera, without really taking time to examine these. So narrative work from our perspective is how do you go deep in, in a critical way into understanding the causative mechanisms of a system and really understanding the cultures and the belief systems that have formed that system. Mm. And so, and that's the first part. The second part is then understanding power, attention, and communities within that. So understanding the way power operates, understanding the way attention operates, and understanding the way communities operate or people operate. And then from there, start to develop hypotheses and different ways to change those systems, influence those systems. Um, and our work particularly, which I think is kind of absent from a lot of narrative work, is this like very key emphasis on life at the center. Mm. Um, you know, so it's like narrative-led system change with life at the center. So that's like, a, you know, I'd say those four points are the key summary of what we call narrative change and narrative-led systems change. Wow. That's, I mean, understanding power dynamics, understanding attention, putting life at the center. I mean, all of those are like huge areas of thought and work and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there, to help us kind of really get to grips with this, can you talk us through an example? Is there anything that you could talk about, you know, like where you've done work on narrative-based systems change, how it's shown up that life was at the center, what this really looks like? Sure. Um, we 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 have a classic example which we use, and the main reason is we've done we've done quite a few different projects around the world, but we use this example mainly because it was such a clear it had such clear stages to this. Um, and I definitely wouldn't say that we were uh, the 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 critical um, piece of of the, the the change that happened, but we were embedded and involved and kind of like watching it as it evolved. And I think that's one of the things you, just as a side note, I think one of the things you learn with narrative change is that it's so complex uh, in many ways, you can't expect this kind of like linear outcome. Like mm. we did this and then it worked. But what you can do is become more and more attentive to what is happening in the system, um, which I think is probably the hallmark of a good narrative practitioner. Um, but anyway, so we we this is probably about four or five years ago um, we were working um, around in Mexico City. There was a there's a, a little area outside Mexico City called Texacoco, and there was a a lake there um, that is a watershed and ha had many different diverse species of animals and plants. And there were also about twenty thousand people, indigenous people, peasants who were living on the land. And uh, the government had decided to uh, allow a, an airport to be built there. And it was going to be a huge airport and completely wipe out the area. Um, so we went into that context and started to talk to people on the ground, started to work with them, started to think with them. And what happened, what happened soon after is there was a referendum um, and the referendum was essentially asking the Mexican people, should we build the airport here or should we build the airport there? Um, and it's, and what we noticed when we did our data analysis and we did our nar narrative analysis, and I can share a case study for more detail. I'm just kind of giving a high level overview. Great. But what we noticed is that the underlying logic was uh, not is progress good or bad, progress was unquestioned the the airport was necessary um and the, the real question that they were asking people is like should we build it here or should we build it build it here and not which is more important and so that was a really key uh kind of turning point um in the conversation we started to share this analysis with the people on the ground really working with them holding workshops holding narrative workshops and slowly over about two months, I think it was September, September, October that year, they, this, this it's kind of like uh, niche group in, initially started to become bigger and bigger. And what they were saying is uh, they started to contrast progress with life, uh, which is a really interesting thing. It wasn't, 
anymore should we build the airport here or not it's like rather we choose the lake we choose life we mm. choose this and so very quickly the conversation turned around and the referendum happened and the um, the mexican people voted to not build the airport there and that area was protected you know and so that was that's that's a really kind of clear example of the way narrative change happens essentially what happens is there's a there's a dissonance in the cultural field and the dissonance discloses something to of what where change wants to happen mm. and so the the second phase is from dissonance to disclosure and the the greater level of awareness that you can bring to those people about what is happening the greater potential for what we call evolution or cultural evolution and then the second the third part is change or evolution or changing actually the the background of information or changing the background of culture um which then leads to real change systems change etc so that's one example amazing i mean what an amazing example so you kind of went from a place where you were able to notice that the overarching narrative that was shaping the conversation before you arrived was the airport equals progress. And mm -hmm. so it was just a matter of where to put it. And then actually through different questions and opening up different space, that narrative shifted to be more like, well, actually we want life. Life is, life is the narrative is the, the thing we want. We want life is the narrative. And then that completely changed the, the whole course of the conversation. And I mean, exactly. I just think it's amazing to to recognize, as you were kind of saying earlier, that actually like narratives are shaping us all the time. And it's not like a signal mm -hmm. that we're, you know, asleep or particularly ignorant or whatever, if we're not conscious of this all the time, because it's just impossible to be conscious of all of those mm -hmm. deeply subconscious narratives that we've inherited and and that we live out. But the huge power that can be there when they're kind of made visible and revealed and we have a chance to question whether that they're the right ones for us. It's just, yeah. it seems like a really relatively simple idea, but such a, such a powerful, powerful mechanism to, to shift mindsets. And I know shifting mindsets is something that's just feels like a, a wicked problem. So many people are grappling with all yeah. over the place. Like, how do we do this? It's, I keep putting data yeah. in front of people and it's not making any difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, what about the narrative? <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thing. You know, what I've, what I, you touched on something there that I think is really important. And that is that, you know, in the, in the human body, the brain, um, specifically the frontal lobe, acts as a way of like mediating or moderating decisions you know and it's a way of actually becoming aware it's a way of becoming self-aware of what you're doing and when when you meditate or when you you know go into these deeper kind of states of concentration you're able to be better be a better judge of what you what is right and what is wrong and so very much culture is very much like this you know culture is this giant network of individuals who are connected like a brain but we have lost the ability to become self-aware, you know, as a, as a culture, like this is the key thing. Like, and so narrative work, essentially what narrative work should do, if it's done well, it should try and surface the self-awareness. When I'm talking about self is like, this is a culture, allow them to become aware mm -hmm. of the things they're doing, the direction they're moving. And then once that happens, culture evolves, it moves in a direction, which is harmonious, equitable, um, you know, regenerative, um, so that's the key. That's the key thing for me in terms of narrative work. Oh, and yeah. you just answered my next question, which was, how do you feel narrative work relates to the idea of regeneration? Um, and maybe then, maybe you would like like to expand on that even further from what you just said. But I'd, I'd also be curious, kind of, as you answered that, to just to hear what what regenerative means to you. What how do you understand that term and and how might mm. it apply to organizations, whether that's a, a community or a business or, mm. or whatever? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think we this is a this is a question which I think is at the heart of our work. And in, in our in our curriculum, uh, we do a fellowship and in our curriculum, the first three modules really kind of answer this question. But so what I would do to summarize it is um, 
when we talk about regenerative, I would say like regenerative, the re regenerative movement, whether it be in ecology or agriculture or culture, has really stemmed from its opposite, which is monoculture, essentially. And so when you look at monoculture and you look at the roots of that, the it's rooted in this kind of like very concrete idea of self, um, this very atomistic worldview. And specifically, it's rooted in the ideologies of progress, right? So mm -hmm. like, and progress, essentially, if we, we break progress down, it's like we have to produce these things at a scale. People have to work these hours to survive. So we always have to be increasing GDP. We always have to be increasing food production. We have to be increasing all these things. So it's like this escalating progress. Um, and if we if we kind of abstract that into a model, um, it's some atomistic unit, whether it be a society or a self that is trying to achieve a goal. There, we're always trying to achieve a goal. And for me, regenerative essentially is the opposite of that. It's not looking into something to be done. It's rather focusing on within, focusing on being and values and, and practices. And so for me, and specifically in narratives, like regenerative means finding um, narratives that are inclusive and integral, essentially. You know, they're including, including um, as, much as, as much as it can and also integrating knowledge from different parts. And so that's how I would understand regenerative narratives. And we have a we have a whole framework in our curriculum that goes into detail about that. We call it the, the system centropy framework. Mm. Um, and it's a way to, to understand narratives and how they fit into, into, um, into the context of cultural evolution. So I would say essentially regenerative um, narratives are diverse they're seeking um, balance and harmony and they're integrative and I'm really interested in this idea of kind of regenerative also not being kind of goal orientated that it's mm -hmm. kind of process orientated and yeah. I'm I was reading the amazing book uh, The Web of Meaning by Jeremy Lent um you're nodding mm -hmm. I don't know if so you've you've heard of it um but um I don't know how how intimate you are with that book but there's a section in it where he's talking about um kind of ancient Chinese wisdom and these ideas of Wu Wei and I think it's Li Wei um mm -hmm. one Wu Wei being like um effortless action like action in mm -hmm. flow when you are in like you were saying kind of like in a meditative flow state when things are just kind of unfolding around you and you're just really aware and alert to what's going on and not noticing as opposed to leeway which is like the goal orientated action I want to get there in five years and I want to tick that box and so on and there's for me it feels like there's a really a really kind of interesting parallel to what you were just saying of kind of actually for you regenerative is more in line with that kind of wu-wei state that more flow less goal-orientated, goal more kind of sensing way of being. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the way, I think Wu Wei is a really good example. The other way is, other, you know, other another way is to call it Zen is very much like this. You know, one of the famous kind of Zen instructions is like Zen is not good for anything. You know, it's like, it's this kind of like sitting, you're just sitting. Mm -hmm. And... I think that is like essentially it's a very it's a hyper relational way of looking at the world. So it's it's almost a, a feminist way, you know, in essence, like how, how do we focus on the relationships and the more we focus on relationships, whether they be with the people you're immediately connected with and the people you're on the other side of the world. Those relationships, if those become the key driving um, force in what you're trying to do then that creates regeneration. Mm. You know, that's the definition of regen regeneration or diversity or biodiversity, you know, as in a, fo a forest survives because of its biodiversity. It's resilient because of its biodiversity. And that's because it's relational. It's a hyper-relational field. Um, so that's how, would, how I think of it. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, I think that was such a beautiful 
response to that. And I really love how we've brought in some of the spiritual aspects to this because mm. it's people don't love to talk about, you know, it's like, oh, spirituality. Oh, you know, oh no, we can't yeah. be seen to be talking about that. But it's so intrinsic to this, how we show up as human beings in any different space and any different relationship has so much of that present, whether yeah. we acknowledge it or not. And, you know, I love that, that what you just said, okay, you know, Zen is good for nothing, but we all know that it's also good for everything, right? The person who yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, <laughs> is kind of, who's in that meeting with you, who's listening deeply who's not kind of trying to deal with their ego and put themselves across and demonstrate that they know more. Exactly. They're the person who you want in that meeting. They're the person who manages to somehow surface the best insights and the best ideas and so on. And so it's like, it's, it does nothing, but it does everything. <laughs> exactly. That's the key. It's presence. You know, I think it's presence. The more, the more you can become present, um, to the field that's emerging in front of you and less in in this kind of like uh logocentric logical world i mean i think there's a purpose for that like we mm. it's important to to have um kind of very well thought out ways of working and thinking thinking is really important but it's you know it's really in service to presence that's how i how i understand it mm. Ooh, and we're getting into some really juicy stuff that I want to circle back to in the context of, okay, so how is this all showing up in Culture Hack? So we've talked a little bit yeah. about how this is showing up in the work that you do out in the world, but you're an organization too. And like, how, how have you, within how you work, how you show up, how you relate to one another, how does this idea of being regenerative and life-centered show up for you yeah yeah that's a really good question and it's and it's a difficult question and i think that i think the first thing to say is that it's not always easy <laughs> it's not always easy or like um simple to explain how we do that and it's there's often a balance between the way we want to work or we should work and the way we actually need to work you know, so the, that's the first thing. We're always trying to like find this balance mm. between, okay, we need to do this and these are the constraints we have, but actually we also want to be be in practice in this way. So that's a, you know, that's a constraint. And I say like, sometimes we get it really right and it's amazing and everything flows and it's just magic. And sometimes it's a little less. Um, But I think the first thing I wanted to say about this is I think there's like a lot of movements right now in the world um that emphasize especially movements that are working to kind of displace patriarchal hierarchical systems or systems of injustice um, there's a lot of organizations that have been really trying to find ways to be flat organizations uh kind of like no hierarchy like we're all flat and and um i think those have their place like they work really well um in some cases, you know, I've seen I've seen it work incredible, like especially in direct actions where there's assemblies and, you know, mm. these beautiful ways of coming together. Um, but it has its limitation, especially when you're trying to do when you're working with, um, let's say. Highly skilled individuals, people who, who are, you know, have have, a, have spent their life really developing their ability to do their work very skilled cognitively very developed well educated and also like super um i'd say there's definitely like a spiritual dimension to the people who work at culture hack you know so that's the first thing so you've got to take that to account um and then also the nature of the work the nature of the work is also quite complex and requires a lot of very it's almost like you can't coordinate it directly mm -hmm. you know it's like something that you and so that leaves us with uh you know the what we talk about or what i talk about a lot actually in, in developing culture Hack. and i'd say we get we we're pretty close to this but is developing hierarch not hierarchical systems but nested hierarchies or functional mm -hmm. hierarchies so you know um which is opposed to dominate a higher hierarchy 
you know, I think it's a really important differentiator. And so the functional hierarchy essentially is this person or this group of people are really good at doing this thing. And so what, what you're trying to find at that point is ways in which those two clusters can talk to each other. So the purpose of the organization is essentially creating innov innovation or connections between specialized um, capacities. So that's how that's how we've tried to model the organization, and I think we've really got that in 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 it. We've got it. We've got a pretty good flow because, for example, we have we have a dev team which have you know they're like data data scientists and programmers and things like that. And um, but we also have linguists and semioticians, and when we have data analysts and we have movement people, and so there's a lot of very kind of like specialized minds and very you know specialized people that work with us. And really, the, the purpose of the organization at its, at its end is to create pathways for collaboration, for understanding, and for organization, and then to let those things do what they need to do. So that's what we try to what we try to facilitate. Um, yeah, and I think mostly we've been successful at that. Mm. I think that you're touching on something really, really important, if I hear you right, because um, in some of the other organizations I've worked with, where there's been this kind of similar commitment to the one you articulated of, we really don't want to be this kind of rigid hierarchy that we've experienced maybe in other organizations and that we see is really not serving them or the world. And so we're going to chuck that out and we're going to have this entirely flat structure. And what I have seen emerge in some of those cases is that there's always hierarchy. There's always hierarchy in any yeah, exactly. relationship, um, any group of people, whether that's to do with, you know, different qualities that are given more status in a particular organization or people who have worked for a longer time and have more experience of a certain thing or have greater expertise in different areas there is hierarchy in some in one way or another and exactly. sometimes it has been it's led to real problems for the people within those systems when there's like a a claim that this is a flat structure and that everyone's treated the same but then the lived experience is different and that there's no Absolutely. then no way to kind of navigate and say well actually I feel like I'm definitely, you know, not on par with you. I feel definitely like I'm kind of looking up to you, but it doesn't feel like I'm almost allowed to express that or to move yeah. in that way. Um, and for me, I think when I've, from what I've seen with the organizations I've been working with is that really the kind of sweet spot is to find this, this place in the middle that recognizes that actually some of the structure of a lot of the organizations that are we're used to that have kind of very rigid, set ways of doing mm -hmm. things lots of rules lots of boxes that there are some benefits to that there's some kind of um security some degree of kind of okay there's you know I don't have to like renegotiate my role every week I like I have some yeah. degree of like okay this is kind of who I am and I can now get on with doing something Whereas the kind of complete lack of any structure or the kind of proclaimed lack of anything, although that gives loads of space for loads of brilliant stuff, like much greater creativity and agility and, yeah. and flexibility, if it's taken way over to that side, it can be really chaotic and stressful for the people that are in it. And it can be really inefficient and maybe even lead to real damage. Like, oh, I have no idea how much holiday I can take because I don't have a contract mm -hmm. and so-and-so's. Yeah you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think what you're, what you seem to have been kind of navigating around is, is this sweet spot in the middle of kind of saying, well, we know that we need some structures, but we really want to make them like intentional and to serve our purpose and to recognize who we are as people and the purpose of our mm -hmm. work. And that for you, mm -hmm. this nested hierarchy structure has been, has worked or has felt like the right one. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so for sure. And and I think I think you touched on a really good point there. It's like the hierarchies exist primarily in a cult in cultures, right? So they're almost invisible. Most of the time they're invisible. And but they're always there. You know, they're always there. And the question is whether they're espoused or not. So I think for us, 
it's really good to always have this conversation. I think that's a key piece is we, we always need to be talking about hierarchies and, um, and also like when somebody is doing a piece of work, they should have, I think they should have ownership. They should almost have responsibility and really feel empowered by, mm. okay, this is what I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, that's a really key part of any work, you know? Um, so the balance for me is one bringing, you know, it's bringing more and more awareness to the field. And then secondly, how do we empower people to do what they want to do? You know, like that's the key thing is like, how do you get people who are super motivated, want to do this work and create the, create the facilities for them to do it. Yeah. And that's when, that's, that's when you don't have to do anything. It's the Zen, you know, it's like, you're just, you're just being attentive to the relationships, you're being attentive to the field. Now I'm saying all of this and I don't know if it's always that clear, you know, like I'm, you know, I think that's, that's the goal. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the practice. And sometimes it's not like that, you know, sometimes we, we all make mistakes and it it ends up, but that's way we learn also. Yeah. Um, So. Well, are mm -hmm. there any things that you could share with us about, you know, things that haven't worked, um, you know, as you've been experimenting with this where you've gone, Oh, actually, you know, we didn't catch that or that ended up not working for that group of people for this reason. Is there anything you can mm-hmm. share about, you know, what what hasn't worked in this kind of road to self-organization? Yeah, I say I say the primary, the first thing that has been really difficult for us, I wouldn't say really difficult, but it's been a hurdle. It's like we don't have a lot of. I would say we don't have the same amount of resource that other organizations have to create spaces for connection and to actually do the practice of connecting and and like mm. so. A lot of the work we've had to do has been kind of in in the midst of like doing a whole bunch of other things, you know, and like, and so I think one of the, the key things that I feel is still missing from our organization is more time where we can come together and really dive deep into what we do and hear each other. And, and a lot of that has been due to um, working mostly online, like we have people in Mexico and people in South Africa and people in the U S and the UK and all over. And so we meet for short periods of time and we try to meet once a year to do a team retreat, but inevitably it's not very long, Mm. you know? So that's something I think is a real, I would love to see more time where we could come together and actually be one social body and really dive deep into these things. Um, and I think we would work a lot better as a team um, if we could get that right. Mm. You know, yeah. Mm. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious now, based on what you were just saying, I'm kind of picking up a whole load of things that I'm like, okay, if if someone wanted to try and shift the organization that they were in to try and be a bit more, regenerative or they're looking to set something new up and they want to do that kind of intentionally with regeneration and life at the at the center from the beginning and picking up Mm -hmm. a number of things from you about kind of the importance of bringing people in who really care about the work that the organization is doing and are kind of really self-motivated in that area they're interested it's their Mm -hmm. passion it's their curiosity as well as their work that that feels like something that you shared which feels important to this nested hierarchy piece Mm -hmm. what else would you say like for for people who are in those positions who are like okay I need to try and shift things or I need to try and I want to try and set something up what things would you be saying okay think about this make sure that you're paying attention to these kinds of things work on these things within yourself what what's sort of your top tips as it were yeah, I mean, it's we're we're a very unusual organization, um, I'd say in many ways. So I can talk from that, you know, and I would say for me, there's two key things. Um, you know, everybody, whenever you meet an organization, they're, they're going to give you their mission statement. It's like, <laughs> this is what we're trying to do. And I think that's really important. But I think more important than that is, is what is the lived reality of your organization and your lived reality of your organization should mirror the thing that you're trying to do, right? So it's like really getting clear about mm. like, okay, what is the lived reality? 
And then the second thing is I'd say there's two pieces to that. And it boils down to like the lived reality is what do you, what as an organization are you practicing? Like, what are you practicing? And when I, when I use the word practice, I use it in the opposite direction of what are you achieving? It's like, what, what is, what are you doing at a day-to-day basis? And I'd say that boils down into two kind of key practices. The first one for us was a critical post-human reflection process that everybody is on and going through. Everyone is like in an authentic inquiry into what does it mean to be post-human, meaning what does it mean to be human in this time where the Anthropocene is breaking everything down? And how do we find meaning in that? Mm. So for that, like this existential kind of like drive is like a key part of the organization, I think. Um, I think that's one thing we all kind of share and recognize as important. Mm. Um, And then the second one I would say is how do you care for each other? And how do you care for yourself? And like, and that is like, how do you, what are the relational ways in which people can show each other care and, um, and show up for each other, you know? Um, So those are the two things that I would say as like key practices. Oh, gorgeous. And I have Mm -hmm. to dig a bit more into that because, you know, how do you, you know, how are you doing that when you're saying, okay, you know, we, we have a process for supporting people to engage with that, those kind of big existential questions about what it means to be a human right now, or, you know, we want people to care for one another and care for themselves. How do you, how are you doing that? What does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the way we do that is that we, we talk about it all the time. Our work is about that. Like in, in terms of like the first piece, it's like, that's what we're all kind of driven by and connected to. And so it becomes part of us. And I think we spend a lot of time, you know, it depends. I I, want to be really honest. I think sometimes it happens less than more, but I, we do try and carve out spaces in which we're connecting in a very deep way, Mm. not just at like a kind of organizational way or kind of professional way. There is like a deeper level where we're trying to connect to each other and connect to the the greater purpose that we're sitting at, you know? Um, So those would be the key things. And I actually think it's the nature of the work, like the nature of doing narrative work in many ways requires you to be very self-reflexive and very critical also of structures and things. It's actually the nature of the work. So these things are there. And I think we also have a very special organization in that we have people who are all kind of in that, you know, we don't have people who are kind of doing work that is very just abstracted or in a different place. It's like, we're all kind of doing that. And so that creates a lot of, um, that creates a lot of shared value, I think. Um, yeah. So those would be the, the places I would say how, how that happens right now. And can I ask you, in terms of taking care of yourself and making sure that you are kind of well-resourced to keep being able to show up as close to the Zen master as you can be. Um, how do you, how do you resource yourself? Oh, that's okay. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think I get, I'm good at it sometimes and I'm really bad at it sometimes, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think, I think very, very much taking time and a spiritual practice, like whatever it is from meditation to, you know, whatever you're doing, I think you really need, I feel like I really need to have that kind of grounding. Mm. Um, but one thing which is like maybe not so like spiritual, which I would also kind of like just want to emphasize is like also taking away this kind of, we have this unspoken policy and organization that if you need time off, just take time off, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think it was the the founder of, uh, Patagonia who wrote this book called Let My People Surf yeah and I read I read I read this when I was like I read it when I was like 25 or something and it always stuck with me and it and it for me it was a revolutionary idea you know at that stage and and I I actually think we've really embodied that in our organization it's like people are humans you know it's like they need to take care of themselves they need to do things they need to they need to not have an excuse to just go be by themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> or be with their family you know, and, and it seems counterproductive. It seems counterproductive, like, oh, we're, you know, but it's actually the complete opposite. 
yeah. people want to be in that in that system. They want to live like that, you yeah. know. So making space for spiritual practice, and when I say spiritual, I also mean just, you know, taking care of yourself. I think is a key key part of an organization, and and I think the tricky thing is creating an organization where people don't feel like they need to make excuses or they need some sort of reason to you know it needs to feel natural yeah yeah and yeah. and that's tricky and and that's something that i think we we're pretty good at actually mm. um at culture hack so well it requires a trust doesn't it it requires a trust exactly. in each other and it requires us not to break that trust um yeah and undermine it and i just i think that the whole let my people go surfing is totally another example of the Zen master, you know, like we said, like yeah, exactly. doing less is actually doing more often. And mm -hmm. that's, that's giving yourself that spaciousness, you know, so much of the, the narrative maybe of our current world is like productivity, be more productive yeah, and exactly. that is better. Exactly. The busier you are, the more you are cramming in, the more you're fitting in more, more, more is better. There's none of this. It's like maximization rather than optimization. There's no attention 100%. to the quality. It's all about yeah. numbers and quantity and so on. And so, so much of what I think has run through our conversation today has been that, that kind of Zen approach of actually like, think about the quality, hold the quality yes. in your, at the Absolutely. center and, and then, and let that, and like focus on how you're behaving and how you're showing yeah. up and and then the thing that you hope might happen the thing you're hoping to in quotes achieve might just appear absolutely yeah i i think one thing i wanted to add to that is i think because we work in really a lot of really intense political social situations and i'm and i've and i've worked in social justice organizations for a while now and I think this is one of the key things is we we actually have to come into those situations with the level of being in presence, which is the solution. It, it has to be the solution already. And, and that's a very tricky thing. And it's a very sensitive thing, actually, because people are very angry. They're they're pissed off, you know, mm -hmm. and and I think a lot of narrative work is this discipline of like, OK, how do I become the the being? How do I become the thing, the actual end result now, while I'm in the situation and become a catalyst for change, become a catalyst for work. And that's, that's the real trick. I think that not just, not just um, culture hack, but I think in general, the organizations that are going to create a regenerative future have to embody this. They have to understand this and, and enact this. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Oh, you're reminding me of a quote, a good friend of mine, shared with me which was a quote from Gandhi's um biography where I'm gonna maybe not remember the exact details but I think he was like Gandhi was getting on a train and a journalist was chasing him being like Gandhi Gandhi what's your mm. message to the people what's your message what are you gonna mm. what are you telling us we need to do what's your message and mm. his response was my life is my message like yeah. what I am doing how I am being this is the message this is the change that I want to see exactly this is the thing I am yeah. hoping to bring about so yeah I really took that from like just like be every single time we are different we show up differently we can never anticipate the ripple effects that that has and if all of us absolutely just became a bit better at listening or got a bit better at yeah. connecting to nature like imagine the the ripple effects that that would have yeah on the real hard kind of concrete things in the world like our economic system absolutely. and our laws yeah they have ripple effects absolutely and that's the refuge you know that's actually the refuge for these times is we don't have another refuge a refuge is to become the change as and as as gandhi says it's like actually you need to embody that and when you embody it you actually immediately relax mm. and and it's 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 like it's a it's a really key key piece i think you know um and it's I, it sounds a lot easier than it is to actually do <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah just just sit down yeah. just relax yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah oh oh mehul i mean thank you i 
this has been an amazing conversation for me too. Um, I hope it's really useful for everyone listening, but I have just loved covering this territory with you and exploring how you're putting this into practice at Culture Hack, but also just learning more about and exploring this territory of what it is to do this work. What's the nature of mm -hmm. it and the spiritual side to it. So thank you yeah, so much. Thank yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great, great chat. And yeah, I look forward to hearing more and uh, yeah, being part of more. Definitely. Um, and the other thing I want to say is that this podcast is, totally about sharing lessons but it's also about really wanting to recognize and celebrate you and the other individuals and organizations that are doing this work um because i know you know some people will say well you know it doesn't feel like like work it's kind of like the only path that i could go down or but mm -hmm. i think you know there is there has to be a recognition that the the broader narrative the broader culture in which we are embedded is pointing in one direction and to be regenerative is pointing in a different direction. And that takes a Absolutely. certain amount of self-awareness, amount of intention, a certain amount of courage to, to choose a different path mm -hmm. to the dominant one. And yeah, I just think it's important to, to celebrate you for doing that and to express gratitude for the amazing work you're doing. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much for holding the space and, I think the, the regenerative organizations in, in, you know, in all their forms are really that kind of direction is really important right now and us to really understand. So I think, I think it's really great. And thank you for doing this work too. It's really, mm. really great to connect. So mm -hmm. great to speak to you. I also, just before we close, I have a panic in my head that I've, that it's, I've said the wrong thing, but it's Wu Wei and something else. Might be Yu Wei. I said Li Wei. I'm not sure if that's right. I want to make sure I get it right. So a note to everyone. I will be checking that and putting the absolute correct words in the show notes for this episode. So, yes, please check that so that uh, I express the correct words. Thank you so, so, so much for all of your time and your incredible insight and your amazing work. I look forward to connecting with you many times after this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Thanks. Thank Blimey, I think I could have spoken to Mehul all day. There are so many things that I am taking away from our discussion, but... Just a quick recap on some of the major things that I've noted down. So firstly, shifting narratives is a critical part of systems change. If we want a more thriving future, then a really big part of that is going to be about understanding and making visible the macro narratives that are shaping the world around us so that we can look at them, challenge them, maybe choose different ones in order to help us move towards a more regenerative narrative and a more regenerative reality. I loved his example of the soil in action. So his example of how it wasn't the specific kind of technical nature of the financing and ownership structure of Culture Hack that, that made the difference. The really crucial thing was whether or not those arrangements were based on shared regenerative values and that when they were, that really gave the organization the freedom to really thrive, to really do its work in the way that it wanted. I'm really reflecting on Mehul's invitation to design the structures of your organization around the specifics of your organization. So really an encouragement to think very carefully about who are the people within that particular organization? What is the nature of the specific work that they are doing? Where are they? What are all of the relevant, important, specific features about that organization in particular? And to not try and kind of import structures or ways of working or hierarchies or methods from other places that maybe aren't the right ones for your particular organization. So I think there's a really, really important message there about developing something that is right for you and not falling into the trap that you, that you need to take that structure or that you don't need any structure at all 
but really being encouraged to develop the structures that are right for you. But I think overwhelmingly from our discussion, the key message for me is what we touched on at the start, that being regenerative in the world cannot be separated from being regenerative inside. That work on how to become more balanced, holistic, relational, present and connected within us is the work of being more regenerative. And so organizations that focus entirely on kind of the doing side, on the visible stuff, on, okay, changing their vision or shifting their procurement strategy or developing more circular waste streams, they risk missing the point. They risk just recreating the same problems with maybe a different flavor and a different color. And that really the organizations that are going to create a really regenerative future understand that they must become the thing that they want to see. So what better way to leave this session than with an invitation to remember that if we want a more thriving future, we need to become that thriving future. Until we speak again, thank you for being here.